church, thank you for your generosity. And uh, by the way, I, I also want to give just a special thank you to all of you who helped, even just physically with the building while I was gone with all of the, the flood damage. Um, yeah, it was, I didn't even know about it uh, until Sunday afternoon. I, I called Titus to ask about the vote, or maybe you called me, and, uh, and then you talked to me about the, the congregational meeting and then the vote, and they said, oh, by the way, <laughs> let me tell you about what happened to the church building. And uh, it's just humbling to be a part of a body that would spring into action and care in the way that you guys did. So special thank you. And uh, I do feel like I went on vacation at just the right time to avoid all of that. So, all right, church, we are in a new series, a new series in the book of Haggai called First Things First. And um, here we go. First Things First. And so we're going to be in there. If, we're going to read at the, at the very top. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to be reading out of the book of Haggai, all of chapter 1. So if you'll stand with me as I read, if you are able. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood to build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says Yahweh. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares Yahweh of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, in the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Yahweh their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Yahweh their God had sent him. And the people feared Yahweh. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke to the people with Yahweh's message. I am with you, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to hear this morning what you have to say to us, Christ Community Church. In the year 2023, may we have open ears and soft hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, as I mentioned, we are in this new series, First Things First. It's out of the book of Haggai. And by the way, special thank you to Liza DeYoung for designing our, uh, our, our templates, our slide templates and, and graphics for the series. But we are quick. We are quick to run after secondary things. We know what ought to be first, or at least we ought to know what ought to be first, yet we still run after the wrong things. There are often things that are urgent and important. There are secondary things that are urgent and important in our lives, but they aren't first. And we start running after those secondary things instead of the first things. And so this series, as we look in Haggai, we see that Haggai is drawing our attention to what's first. Haggai is a short little book. If you've read it before, it's only two chapters long, but we're going to spend four weeks. We did, we're going to do the whole cha- first chapter today. In the next three weeks, we're going to be covering the last chapter because Haggai consists of four separate messages from the prophet Haggai, or from the Lord, I should say, through the prophet Haggai to his people Israel. And in short, God is calling his people to rebuild the temple to rebuild the temple. If you would remember, kind of back to our series on Esther, God's people, they had been dwelling in the land, but due to their wickedness and their idolatry, God exiled them from the land. Babylon came in and conquered them and exiled them, took them away, but also the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, the temple built by Solomon. That happened in 586 where the temple was destroyed. And you see the temple being destroyed, and this is, this is a big deal in the Scriptures. That moment when the temple was gone. Because the temple wasn't just a place where God's people would come and gather together to worship. It was that, but it was far more. God's very presence was in the temple. His spirit resided in the temple. And so God's people could go to the temple to be near God. And it also demonstrated that they had been chosen by God. They were loved by God. God had chosen to be with them. When Solomon built the temple, he said, God, you created the heavens and the earth. How could a mere house constructed by the hands of mere men ever hope to contain you? And the answer is obviously it can't really. But God in his mercy came and dwelt among his people. So the temple was important. And its destruction is a big deal. So Haggai is calling God's people to rebuild the temple. Now more on that in a moment. But why is this then relevant for us? We aren't Jewish people living in the land. After all, the second temple did eventually get built through Haggai's prompting, but then it was destroyed. A few decades after the life of Christ, the Romans destroyed the second temple. There is no temple today. And so when we read Haggai, what are we supposed to do with this? As Christians, what do we do with these calls to rebuild the temple? Well, we see in the scriptures, that the temple is incredibly important because the temple was pointing and foreshadowing, it was pointing towards a new covenant reality. It's pointing specifically to two things. One, first we see that Jesus is the new temple, ultimately. The temple was pointed to Jesus. Jesus is God dwelling among man. John even tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says that uh, the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That word there is tabernacle. The idea of uh, the tabernacle was 
what preceded the temple, this idea that God has come down and He is with His people. But not only does the temple foreshadow Christ, we as the church are the body of Christ, and we are consistently described as the temple. Hear this from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, talking about the household of God, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, so building language, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, we, the church, are the new temple of God. So when we see how God talks about the temple in the Old Testament, it demonstrates to us, oh, this is how God feels about us, His church. We are the temple because we are the body of Christ, ultimately. These two images of Jesus being the temple and the church being the temple, I'll flesh these out more as the series go on. We'll see more about Jesus being the temple next week. But for us, we are called to build the temple. We are called to build the church. We bring people in. Not only do we bring people in, we also build them up. So the structure continues to expand and also go higher as we walk with Jesus. So back again to this second temple. So in 586, the first temple is destroyed. Then the Babylonians were ultimately conquered by the Persians. And Cyrus the Great, as the king of the Persians, said to the remnant of Israel, hey, you guys are free to go back to your land and you need to rebuild your temple. And you know what? I'm going to pay for it. That's what Cyrus the Great told them. So in 538, a remnant of the people who were living in Babylon went back to the promised land and specifically started to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Immediately, they set up an altar to begin sacrifices again. They also even laid a foundation of the temple. But the work soon thereafter stopped. They worked on it for a few years and then opposition arose, specifically from some Samaritans. You can read all about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Opposition arose and the work stopped. So we fast forward to about 520. So they started building in 538, and then 18 years later in 520, because again, remember in BC, the numbers count down as we get closer to Christ. In 520, Haggai comes on the scene, and he offers these four messages telling his people to rebuild. Building has stopped for about 10 to 15 years, and we're going to start again, as we saw in our passage. Now, just real brief, there's four people that we need to talk about, because it starts out in the second year of Darius the king, by the, that's the Persian king, by the way, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, uh, sorry, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. So we have Haggai, we have Zerubbabel, we have Joshua the priest, and we have Yahweh of hosts. Haggai the prophet, he's the mouthpiece of the Lord. When Haggai speaks, it's as if God himself is speaking. God is speaking through Haggai. So we have a prophet. We then have Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of David. He's the governor. He's not the king, but in some way he's a picture of the promised king that God has said will come. So we have a prophet. 
We have a king, and then lastly, we have the priest, Joshua. And the high priest, he's in charge of all the priests and of all the sacrifices that were being done. The priests mediated between the people and the Lord, so a very important role. So we have a prophet, a priest, and a king. Jesus ultimately fulfills all of those roles for us, the new covenant people of God. But we have those three uh, people in the book. And then lastly, we have Yahweh of hosts. This is the most common way God is referred to in this book. And basically, it means Yahweh of armies. Host is just another word for armies. So if it's easier for you to think Yahweh of armies, that's what it's saying. This phrase is used 14 times, just two chapters, 14 times. It's said again and again. And it demonstrates God's power and sovereignty. So here these people have stopped building the temple, mainly because of opposition and because they had opportunities to build their own homes and make them nice and the way they wanted them to be. And God says, I am God of armies. I have all power. You don't need to be afraid. So there's something very significant going on with just the name that we have. Also, they're being occupied and governed by a foreign force. So here God is saying, yeah, a foreign government is in charge of you right now, but I'm still Yahweh of armies. Yahweh of armies. So we'll see more of that as we uh, go throughout the book. But He is the God who is in control. Okay, that's a very long introduction. It was the beginning of a series, so I, I needed to walk through those things. But let's talk about the passage today. We're going to start with the problem, then move on to God's responses, and then talk about the people's response to God. So we're going to have the problem God's responses, and then the people's response to God. So diving into our first point today, we are quick to turn our attention to our own wants and needs over God's purposes. We are quick to turn our attention to our own wants and needs over God's purposes. Notice I don't just say wants here, I say needs. God understands that we have needs. The people living in Jerusalem needed houses. Jerusalem was lying as a ruin, but God still says, hey, my house comes first. Now, they were also dwelling upon their wants, and they're living in paneled houses, which is, is ambiguous as to what that's actually referring to. It may have talk, been talking about roofs or fancy walls. We're not really sure, but either way, they are building their houses. So let's get back into the text itself, starting in verse 2. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of, the, of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So here's the problem. They're saying it's not time. We're facing opposition. We have other things to do. Don't you understand, God? It's just not convenient right now. They're looking to their own wants. This gets reiterated down in verse 9, specifically the second half. You know, he says, hey, you looked for much, became little, God blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. This word busies, the word is literally runs. You are running after building your own house. It's not just, well, I'm building my house and this is a great thing. But no, you are pursuing this with all that you have. You know when you're running, you, you know, nobody runs and isn't out of breath. It takes everything you have to run. He says you're running after your own houses instead of 
running after God's house. And this reveals something that's going on in the heart. Now, mind you, these people are the remnant. God wiped out a lot of the idolatry that existed in Israel before the exile. These are people who are supposedly seeking to follow the law. And he says, but hey, your heart still isn't running after me. They aren't concerned with God's presence and purposes in the world. If they were thinking about how God needed to be represented, how they needed to have a place where they could come and gather together and God would be there with them, they would build the temple. And he says, you clearly don't care about me and my representation in the world. You don't care about my glory. And church, we have that same heart. We are quick to turn our attention to our own wants and needs over God's purposes. You see, we all have a list of priorities, right? We have things in our lives where it's like, okay, I need to do this, this, and this. And we rank them as far as what's more important. Lower priorities are trumped by higher priorities. So I have a question for us, for you, for our church this morning. How often are we prioritizing life in the church? Not just what we do on Sunday, but who we are as a church, the things that we do outside of our Sunday morning times, and not just our gatherings, but the way that we serve one another. But also, how often does Sunday morning worship get bumped for other things? It's like, well, I got this other thing I want to go do, so I'm going to go do it. If something big is happening in the life of our church, do we make it a priority to make sure that our scheduled time away, you know, whether it's vacation or whatever, doesn't conflict with that big thing, says the pastor who wasn't present for the congregational vote a couple weeks ago. <laughs> you know, we've got Weekend in the Word coming up in early October. Will we, as a church, make it a priority to say, hey, I need to learn about what is going to be taught, and will we come? We're often quick to be concerned about our own finances. You know, it stresses us out when we're, you know, seeing our bank account go low or financial dealings don't work out the way we hoped. But do we feel that same sense of anxiety when we think, oh, you know, our church is suffering? Now, I'm not saying that we ought to feel anxious about any of those things, but I think oftentimes our anxiety reveals our priorities. Our natural default is to be concerned with the immediate responsibilities that God has given us. And we rightly should care about our immediate responsibilities. That's natural for us. What's unnatural for us is to care about those responsibilities that we have uniquely as the people of God. And to say that, man, we need to be a part of this. God has given me this responsibility. It's true that if we don't run after the Lord's house... His church, we will run after our own house, just naturally. I was, you know, since we were at the beach, I have lots of beach analogies and illustrations for you. So one, one of the days, the wind was quite strong, and there was a really strong side current that if you were not fighting against the current and the waves, I mean, you would go down the beach pretty quick. Thankfully, it wasn't out to sea, but it was down the beach. And I remember one time, uh, I'm watching uh, our oldest, Kyla, she's, uh, she's in the waves, and she's just really not paying attention to where she's at in, in relation to the shore. You know, she's not going too far out, but she, she's just kind of just gradually going down the beach. 
oblivious to it. And after, I'm, I'm watching the whole time. Don't worry, I'm a good parent. And then uh, after a while, she comes out and she's just like, like, where am I? Like, where is our stuff? Because she was 50 yards down the way. Because you had to fight to keep from getting swept away. We run after our own houses because that's natural for us. It's what the world does around us. So unless we actively fight against that, we will start caring about our own world more than the Lord's church. It's just natural. I'm the pastor and I feel that way. I start caring about my own life over what God is calling me to. We have to train ourselves to think about the Lord's work first. Okay, so let's ask the question, what work needs to be done? Aside from a bunch of drywall and roof repair and stuff. It's easy to think about the church building as this is the Lord's temple. But the new covenant reality and what we see in the New Testament is it's far bigger than just this space. It's the people of God. They need our investments. We need to be making new disciples. We need to be laying down our lives. We need to be giving. We need to be serving. Not as a, oh, i got to do this, but as a, oh, God has invited me into His work. There are kind of three, three kind of categories that you can think about your life and, and how you can be a part of building God's temple here. Your time, your talents, and your treasure. Your time, your talents, and your treasure. With your time, a good question to ask is, do I serve only when it's convenient or am I eager to serve when it's needed? So don't let convenience be the standard upon whether you're, you're serving in a, in a satisfying way, but do I serve when I'm needed? Secondly, your talents. Do you serve in a way that's unique to you? Each one of us has specific gifts, so do you serve in a way that God has called you to serve? And lastly, your treasure. Are you eager to give your best to the Lord's work? Do we give more attention to our financial stability, to our retirement fund, than we do to what we're giving and our faithfulness with our wallets? That's kind of corporately, I think, how we can serve one another. There's an individual component, too, where we need to be working on our own hearts. Do you budget your time to where you are in God's Word and walking faithfully with Him? Do you pay attention to your own spiritual development and seek to read. Uh, church, true confessions, I'm not someone who loves to read, nonfiction at least. I have to discipline myself to do it because it's like, oh, this is boring. But it's necessary. Do we, are we readers, people who seek to learn? Are we people of the Word? All right, I, I've belabored this enough. We are quick to turn our attention to our own wants and needs over God's purposes. So let's speed up a little as we continue on. Second idea for today is that God responds to our pursuit of our own wants and needs by, and the first one is, withholding His blessings from us in order to get our attention. God withholds from us to get our attention. You hear that and you think, well, that doesn't sound very nice. But it is. It is a kindness of the Lord to not allow the things that won't satisfy us to not satisfy us. He keeps those things from meeting the deepest needs and longings of our heart because He is a gracious and merciful God. We see here in verses 5 to 11, I won't read this again, but they're, they're doing all of these things. They're sowing, and they're not harvesting a lot. Their clothing isn't keeping them warm. They're putting money, in. they're earning their wages, and it's like putting a, their money into a bag with holes. 
or investing in cryptocurrency. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's just for you, Titus. But so what they're doing is just, it's going away. God says he blew it away. God is doing this actively. Verses 10 to 11, God calls for the drought on the grain, the wine, the oil. And by the way, when you see grain, wine, and oil in the Old Testament, those were kind of the three agricultural products of the promised land. So he's saying the things that you use to survive on. You know, I don't really think about grain, wine, and oil. And in Sioux County, we think about, you know, corn, cows, and pigs maybe. Like that, that, that might be our grain, wine, and oil. But here God is saying, yeah, all this stuff that you need, I am blowing it away. I will speak more to this in two weeks since Haggai raises this point again in his third message. So I'll talk more about it then. But we'll see, what, just real briefly, we see God's not punishing them in the punitive sense. He's not saying, I'm going to show you. But instead, He's trying to help them see their need for Him and to get their attention. It's discipline. As they don't receive what they need, it should force them to ask, where is God in all of this? It should draw them back to Him. When we don't get what we're chasing after, it should turn us to the Lord. Because someone who has all his needs and wants met has very little need for Christ. Very little need for Christ. You may feel like you're struggling and getting nowhere in your life. You're pursuing the promotion. You're pursuing your schooling. You're pursuing seeing your kids grow. And maybe you feel like it's just like trying to hold water. Just continually slips through your fingers. You never get it or you get it and it doesn't satisfy. Have you thought that perhaps the Lord is doing that in your life because He's trying to get your attention? And He's saying, will you turn to me? Will you stop chasing after these things? There's a house that needs to be built and it's not yours. Are we willing to ask that question? So God withholds His blessings. Secondly, He invites us, He's inviting us to examine ourselves and change. He wants us to look at our hearts. So He takes the things away and then He says, look at your heart. This phrase, consider your ways, pops up twice in this section and four times I believe in the whole book. He says, consider your ways in verse 5. And then again in verse 7, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. This consider your ways... It's not just, hey, think about it. It's not that. It's a, it's a call to give careful thought to what you're doing. Deep consideration. It's really a call to change your thinking, feeling, and doing. It's not, hey, think about this and see if you agree. It's, you're going in the wrong direction. Look and go the other way. Consider your ways. So in what area is the Lord calling you to consider your ways? your time, your talents, your treasures. One pastor uh, mentioned this. He said, a lot of people, they say, you know, I'm going to give to missions later when I have more room in my budget, when I'm more financially secure. And the hard truth, church, is that God does not need your money for His missions. What He needs is your obedience. God does not need the more money that you're going to have in 10 years. And so He says, will you be faithful now? And again, that's not a call to be silly with your money. But he says, are you willing to sacrifice even now? 
because I want your heart. He says, I don't need your stuff. I want your heart. To, the, to, these, to these, uh, these Jews, he's saying, I want your heart. Are you willing to push pause on your paneled houses so that you can come and work on my temple? I want your heart. All of this shows the graciousness of God that he invites us to consider our ways. He reached out to them. He, didn't, he could have said, these guys still don't get it. They're not building the temple. I'm going to start over. I'm going to do something else. Forget it. But instead, he graciously invites them to build the temple. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? That we have rejected God. We've gone our own way. We've sinned against him. But he still reaches out and says, consider your ways. You see, each one of us deserves eternal separation, eternal damnation from God because of our rebellion against Him. All of us have done that. But God says, I I love you. And yes, my wrath needs to be poured out, but I'm going to pour it out on myself. And so Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity, comes and dies on our behalf. He lives a perfect life. He doesn't deserve to die, but He dies for you and for me, and He invites us to call on Him to be saved, to believe. Calling on Jesus is saying, I believe that you died for me. And so He invites all of us here this morning. If you are here this morning and you have not believed, Jesus Christ invites you to consider your ways. Is what you're chasing after satisfying you? Jesus offers full satisfaction. And I don't say that in the sense that your life will be amazing. You may have to stop building your house, and you may end up having a terrible-looking life and house. But you will have God's very presence residing with you. And you can be part of this family and body here, and we long for you to consider your ways and turn to Christ. Consider your ways. God graciously invites you to examine yourselves and change, and Christians, He invites us to do that as well. Where do we need to change? Thirdly, God is empowering His people to obey His call. He empowers us. You'll see that the people, their hearts are stirred by the Lord. So let's see this in the text. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the remnant of the people, what are they? They fear the Lord. And then in verse 13, God says, I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people. He stirs. There's two specific ways, the, the, two specific ways that the Lord empowers His people. One, He says, I am with you. I am with you. Which, remember, the temple's gone. So the idea of God's presence, it's like, okay, where is God? There's no place I can go and see Him. And He says, hey, I know the temple's not built yet but still I am with you. And then His Spirit stirs their hearts. Stirs their hearts. It's, it's an amazing promise that Jesus gives to us in Matthew 28, 20. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then soon after Jesus ascends to heaven, He sends His Spirit to the church. So we have Jesus' presence with us and His Spirit stirs our hearts. And here we see in the Old Testament, the Spirit stirring the heart of the people so that they move. It's as if the the Spirit is kind of the battery that makes the people go. Their job was to be willing. And the Spirit stirs them up. Do you have a heart that can be stirred? 
you know, picture a concrete mixer at uh, Culver's, and if you tried to take that with a straw and even kind of stirring it with a spoon, it's pretty, pretty tough, especially like a little plastic spoon that they give you. Do you have a heart that can be stirred? Will you hear the Spirit inviting you to examine yourself and change? Will you allow yourself to be stirred up to the work of the Lord? Do you see it as a joy and privilege to be a part of what God is doing? Or is it a burden saying, oh, I don't want to do that. And if we do feel that way, we can just confess it to God and be like, God, I've neglected building your house. I haven't wanted to do it. Praise be to God. Lord, thank you that you are gracious to me and you forgive me. Help me to have joy. And God says that he will move in our hearts. God is empowering you through his spirit to do his work. Let's see the faithful response of the people. Well, here's the point, sorry. Faithful obedience is quick. Faithful obedience is quick. Because when does their response happen? On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The original message from Haggai was delivered on the first day of the month. So this is 23 days later, and the implication is that they started gathering materials. And so a little over three weeks later, they're ready to build. So they immediately charge into action There's no long delay of several years. They say, oh my goodness, this is what God has said, so we are going to do it. It's quick. Their faithful obedience is quick. So today, church, if you are hearing the Lord call you today, let you yourself be, be quick. That's what I'm trying to say. Be quick. Respond to His voice. Why were they quick? Well, they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. See this at the end of verse 12. And it's like, oh, well, isn't God gracious and merciful? Well, yes, He is, but He's also mighty and powerful. Fear of the Lord is an awe of who He is. And it's an awe of His might. It's an awe of His glory, His splendor, and His wrath. In the Scriptures, when people come face to face with the living God, they fall flat on their face like dead men. They just fall down and they can't move. But then God generally sends His Spirit to put His hand on Him and lift them up and breathe life into them. We see that again and again. And here we see the people are fearful, but then God says immediately, I am with you. I am with you. We don't fear the Lord in the sense that He will smite us because we see His wrath being poured out on Jesus and not us as His people. But we're in awe of Him and our awe of Him should drive us to be obedient because we say, well, this is who God is. He is awesome and wonderful, glorious and powerful. John Piper describes it this way. He says, imagine climbing a Himalayan mountain and then a massive storm is coming in. And you're fearful of the wind and the snow that will just kind of take you off the side of the mountain, tumbling down and down into a crevasse. But at the last moment, you find a cave. And in the cave, in the safety out of the wind, you are able to observe the fierce glory of the storm go by. And that is the way that the Christian has a fear of the Lord. Yes, we see His glory, but we also know that the cross shelters us from all of that. And so we're able to turn to the Lord and say, Praise God, you are so good. So church, don't harden your heart. 
Do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, respond. Respond. Here's our big idea for today, just what I want you to walk away from. Consider what you're building. Is it the Lord's house? When you look at your life, is what you are building the Lord's house? Only you can answer that. And God in His mercy invites you to build His because His house is better. It shows His glory to the world. Church, we are quick to turn our attention to our own wants and needs over God's purposes, but God in His mercy gets our attention and invites us to consider our ways. He empowers us to respond. And so will we respond? Let me pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You that You call us to build Your house. Help us to be eager to build. May we see that as we build, we are doing something that is pleasing to you. Father, forgive us for how we have run after our own houses and help us to turn our attention to what is eternal, to the things that will last. Because Lord, the things that we build in this life, the houses that we run after, the things we try to do, so much of that will not last into eternity. So help us, Lord, to build the eternal house, to build your church. And we thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus to be the true temple where your presence is with us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' present name. Amen.